Have you learned to pray? Have you, have you learned to pray? Have you learned to pour out your soul to God? Where would you go to learn how to pray? To whom would you look to learn the ways of prayer? Jesus was and is certainly a model, and so are the authors of the Psalms. This morning, we have the the privilege of reading and studying Psalm 102. And in this psalm, we learn, or perhaps relearn, what it means to pour out our hearts to the Lord when under great affliction. Perhaps you're suffering now, and you could use some help in thinking through what it it means to express your pain to God. I trust that Psalm 102 has some help for you. Even if you're, you're not suffering or struggling, uh, you live in a fallen world. And sadly, should the Lord continue to give you life and breath, sadly, you will likely meet pain. Perhaps reading and studying this psalm is preparation for those potentially painful days ahead. Wherever you are, whether you are soaring or whether you're suffering, this psalm gives us hope. Hope of a world fully and finally restored by the God who hears the prayers of his people. So let's turn and find our hope in him now. If you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 102. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the beginning of the passage on page 501. 501. Psalm 102 is situated between Psalm 101 and Psalm 103. And that's significant, not numerically, of course, but because Psalm 101 is a coronation psalm, a psalm that would be declared when a king was crowned. And Psalm 103 is a psalm of blessing. Both Psalm 101 and 103 are psalms of David, but Psalm 102 doesn't have the same author, and it doesn't have the same tone, at, at least not at first glance. There's a sense in which Psalms 101 and 103 are triumphant from beginning to end. Psalm 102 is also triumphant, but we have to go through the valley in the beginning of the psalm in order to have our souls restored in the end. You see there, the ascription of the Psalm 102 reads as follows. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. This tells us that the psalm was written by a man with a heavy burden. He is so burdened, in fact, that the torments of his soul are having a physical effect upon him. And what does he do with such burdens? He pours them out to the Lord. He he goes to the only one who can help him. I wonder, have you done that with your burdens? What could be burdening this man? Well, we're not told explicitly in the ascription or in the psalm itself, but if we're, if we're sensitive readers of this psalm, the burden is obvious. The author of this psalm is lamenting the, the horrors of the exile. The exile is, is that period in Israel's history where they were removed from the promised land of Canaan. Like Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, were removed from the Garden of Eden for their sin. See, the people of Israel, they had turned their back on God. They had violated the law of God. 
they had agreed to keep the law of God, and as long as they did, they had the privilege of living in the promised land of Canaan. But sadly, the people of Israel violated the law of God over and over and over again. And God removed them from the land, just as he promised he would all the way back in Deuteronomy and even in Leviticus. The curses for disobedience to the covenant had fallen upon Israel. And the psalmist is lamenting his plight in exile. You take a look there at verse 13. You see the psalmist, he, he speaks of the Lord having pity on Zion. That was the capital city of Jerusalem. And in verse 14, the psalmist speaks of holding the stones dear and having pity on her dust. The great capital city, Jerusalem, had been laid waste. And in all likelihood, the temple, the, the place where God made his dwelling and glory known, has been destroyed too. This is the burden of the psalmist. So why would a psalm with such a different tone and probably a different author be placed in between two psalms of David, Psalm 101 and 103? Well, who was given the promise to restore Zion, or better yet, to build God's house? That promise was given to David in 2 Samuel 7. You see, in the Old Testament, the, the restoration of the city of God, the temple of God, and the people of God was coupled with the victory of the king of God. So we see that this psalm, which is likely concerned with the fortunes of God's people languishing in exile, ultimately looks to God's promises in Jesus. In Jesus, God's promises come in full. In Jesus, God not only rebuilds the temple in his resurrection from the dead, but he also rebuilds his people. A temple of the living God, as the Apostle Paul says. All of this means that God rebuilds a people who will worship him from every tongue and tribe and nation. So what is the message of Psalm 102? It is this. Pour out your heart to the Lord and hope in him for your restoration. That's the point of this sermon. Pour out your heart to the Lord and hope in him for your restoration. Psalm 102 announces this message in four movements. First, the psalmist lays out his heavy burden before the Lord. Then he points the people to the Lord, the source of their hope. And the psalmist even assures the people that one day they will praise the name of the Lord for their restoration. And the psalm then concludes with the psalmist returning to the Lord with his humble plea, his plea for restoration. We're going to study Psalm 102 in four sections under four headings. Heavy burden, hopeful perspective, heartfelt praise, and humble plea. Let's begin with our first point, heavy burden. We see this in verses 1 to 11. Uh, please follow along as I read, and I'll begin with the ascription again. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. 
All the days my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Bright ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Verses 1 to 2. Verses 1 and 2 announce the psalmist's prayer and desperate cry for the Lord to answer. While verses 3 to 11 describe the psalmist's plight under this heavy burden. Interestingly enough, the ascription wonderfully summarizes what we see occurring in verses 1 to 11. In these verses, we do see a poetic prayer of a deeply afflicted man. And he is also afflicted in soul. He's so afflicted in soul, he's affected in body. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever met a sorrow so heavy that your, your body actually feels physically burdened? Physically heavy. Have you ever been so weighed down by grief that it feels as though gravity is pulling you down harder than yesterday? When God made us in his image, he did not make us as compartmentalized creatures. He made us whole. He made us as those who possess body and soul. And the pain that we feel in our bodies can lead to pain in our souls. And the pain of our souls can lead to pain in our bodies. The heavy burden that this afflicted one feels speaks truthfully to our experience of life in this burdensome world. But there is something we must learn from him. We must pour out our complaints before the Lord, and we must do so with urgency. His prayer, according to verse 1, is a cry. He isn't whispering to the Lord with a still, small voice. He is declaring, demanding even, that God hear his prayer. I wonder, do you think that is impertinent? I mean, doesn't he know who he's talking to? Doesn't he know he's yelling? He's, that's what he's doing in the text. He's yelling at the Almighty God. He's saying, give me your ear. According to verse 2, he's saying more than that, isn't he? saying, answer me speedily. Who does this guy think he is with all this yelling at God and demanding that God answer him? He must think that he is a child of God. He must think that God loves him as a good father. He must think that God is not disturbed by the volume of his cry or the apparent insensitivity of his request. He must actually think that this honors God as God. Brothers and sisters, do you know what this cry reveals? This cry reveals that this man has nowhere to turn but up. When we come to the end of all of our striving, the end of all of our strength to depend upon God, then he is revealed as our hope. This honors God, for in this he is revealed as the foundation of our faith. When all is stripped away and our souls are laid bare, and we carry everything to God in prayer. He is honored and glorified. Do your prayers honor God like this prayer honors God? Christian, this prayer has been, it's been preserved for us in Holy Scripture as a model for us. We can pray like this. We can pray with urgency and desperation and even volume. We can pray with sorrow and grief heavy on our hearts and heavy on our bodies. This may mean that from 
from time to time, we need to break out of the habit of praying silently. How do we cry out with our mouths closed? Why does this man need God to hear his prayer? Why does this afflicted one need God to stop hiding his face? What, what does that even mean? Well, in the Old Testament, God's face is associated with his blessing. Just think of the blessing of Aaron from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, where, where Aaron says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And what is the opposite of blessing in the Old Testament? Well, it's curse. This man needs God to answer his prayer because he, as a member of the people of Israel in exile, need God to turn his face upon his people again. They need his blessing again. They're under his curse. They need his blessing. And just consider what this exile is doing to him there in verses 3 to 11. Remember, these are, these are poetic images. The psalmist is wasting away. That's verses 3 to 5. He is sleepless in the night and as lonely as a bird. Verses 6 and 7, he's, he's berated by enemies. He struggles to eat and is disciplined by the Lord. Verses 8 to 10. Finally, in, verses, in verse 11, he circles back to the image of, of grass withering away, as he mentioned in verse 4. The multiple references to the grass withering and fading away should remind us of what we read earlier in the service from, from James. <coughs> All told, these images express nothing short of death approaching this afflicted one. The sun is setting on his life, and the grief is almost more than he can bear. Remember, this is the grief of one in exile, one anxious for God to look on his estate, but also on his people. What does all of this remind us of? Shouldn't this remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, was he not grieved by the unbelief that he met in his ministry? Did you know that the psalmist forgot to eat bread there in verse 4? That during Jesus' ministry, there were times when he actually didn't eat. And his family worried over his mental state. You could read about that in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And did you know that just as, as the bird of verse 6 wandered in the wilderness, Jesus actually wandered in the wilderness all alone. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Did you know that Jesus was taunted by his enemies? And that his name became a byword in their mouths. Jesus of Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth, they would say. John 1.46. And how can we forget the mocking and scorn that Jesus endured as he hung on the cross and was exiled from God's favor? The grief of the psalmist was the grief of our Savior. Jesus knew, perhaps better than anyone else who walked this earth, the sorrows of this psalm. And like the psalmist, Jesus carried the heavy burden of a people who had been exiled from God, and he was dying to bring us back. He was dying that we might be restored. And he was every bit as hopeful as we find in the next portion of the psalm. Having considered the psalmist's heavy burden, let's turn now and consider our second point, hopeful perspective. Hopeful perspective. This is what we find in verses 12 to 17. Follow along as I read these verses. Verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever, you are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. 
nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. In verses 12 to 17, the psalmist finds hope in the eternality of God, the compassion of God, and the purposes of God. This is what makes up the hopeful perspective of the people of God. Verse 12 is undoubtedly a turning point in the psalm. That opening phrase, but you, O Lord, is set in sharp contrast to the the heavy burden previously announced. And what we are seeing here in terms of a transition from the first 11 verses to the next six is, is well summarized in the words of Edward Boat, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. The, the psalmist places all of his hope on the eternally enthroned one. That's the attribute that's underscored there in verse 12, you see. How is God's eternal rule a source of hope for those in turbulent times. If if God's rule is eternal, then God's rule is going to outlast the present trouble. If God has ruled and reigned over trouble in the past, then he is certainly ruling over the trouble of the present, and he will reign beyond it too. He will reign on into eternity. The hope of every believer in every trial is this. God is in control. Not only do we draw hope from the fact that God is in control, but we also draw hope from the fact that God is compassionate. Just look at verse 13 again. You will arise and have pity on Zion. Now skip down to verse 17. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Do you see how certain the psalmist is of God's compassion upon God's people? He's so certain of it that he speaks of it as a thing that's already been accomplished. Right? God will arise. He, he will have pity. He does regard the prayers of his people. God does not cast his people off. He has compassion upon us, his people. This is our hope, that we have a God who pities us. He pities us not simply because we're helpless, though that is true. He pities us because we are chosen and dearly loved. Deuteronomy 7, 6 and Colossians 3, 12. We are a people that God has tied his name to, and our misfortunes stir his compassion. Remember, Christian, he's he's tied his name to you. You have been baptized in what? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We bear the name of the triune God, and he has compassion upon us. He he cares. Do do you remember how, how Mark described Jesus in his gospel, when he saw the hungry crowds. Mark said this about Jesus in Mark 6, 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know, part of our hope, this is part of our hope, that we have a, a sympathetic Savior, a compassionate Savior. We have a, a God who cares. You know, we're, we're lying in bed with a broken arm, or a heart condition, or cancer, or unemployment, or discouragement, or or whatever it may be. And we have the testimony of Scripture. We have God saying to us, my child, I know. 
I see. I hear. And I love you. I, I love you so much that one day I'm going to make all things new. I, I'm going to restore and remake the world so that there will be no more sin or sickness or suffering or dying or pain. I know and I have that much compassion upon you and love for you. We also have hope in the fact that God has purposed to restore a people for his name and glory. The purpose of God is what's underneath the psalmist's words there in verse 13. He is persuaded of God's action on behalf of his people. How can he be so certain that God will have pity on Zion? How can he know that a time of favor will come? What is this about an appointed time? How is it that the, the psalmist in verse 15 looks into the future with such confidence and says, A day is coming when nations will fear the name of the Lord and kings of the earth, all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. When, when will that happen? Even when the Lord sent his people into exile, he promised them that he would bring them back. He promised them that he would restore them and rebuild them. We know this from Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 and Zechariah chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, and, and Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 10. Listen to what Jeremiah says. This is the promise of restoration after the exile. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. See, we know from Scripture and history that the Lord, he, he raised up Cyrus to free the people of Israel from the, the Babylonians, we also know that Cyrus allowed the people of Israel to return to Canaan and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. But can I, can I just ask you to search your Bible memory for a moment? When you think back on, on that return after the exile, was it as glorious as we see promised here? I mean, when the people of Israel returned to their land and rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple in the late 6th century, did the nations come to fear the name of the Lord? Did God appear in his glory did he, did he build up Zion? Wasn't it the tear-filled testimony of the old men of Israel that, that the new temple, it, it lacked the glory of even Solomon's temple? It's supposed to be better than this. As wonderful as that return from the exile and restoration of God's people was to the land, the hope-filled perspective of this psalm looks beyond that to something even greater, which we need to unpack from verses 18 to 22 where we encounter the heartfelt praise of God's people. So let's turn now and consider our third point, heartfelt praise. Follow along as I read verses 18 to 22. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. From beginning to end, verses 18 to 22 are oriented toward the heartfelt praise of a future people. This psalm is being recorded that is to say, it's being written down for a generation to come so that, the psalmist says, a people yet to be created may praise 
the Lord. This psalm is written for a future people to read, reflect on, and recognize that God has been faithful to his promises and purposes, and he's worthy of praise. Now notice what this psalmist is doing. His vision is cast entirely into the future. He's looking up from his present desolation. He's looking up from the present distress of the people of Israel in exile, and he's looking forward to that time when God looked down from his holy height to hear the groans of the prisoner and to set free those who are doomed to die. In other words, the psalmist appears to be looking forward to the time when God will have answered the prayers and acted for the good of his people. It will be like a new exodus. That's the nature of the language here. Just like he did when Israel was in Egypt. God will set the captives free. He he will liberate those who have been doomed to die. Verse 20 reminds us of what we read in Hebrews chapter 2 of Jesus. Jesus not only looked down, but he came down. He, He partook of our flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Why will this take place? Take a look at verse 21. Why will this take place? That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together in his kingdom and kingdoms to worship the Lord. Okay, we just can't wait any longer. Uh, we need to start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. We need to start putting together the clues of verses 12 to 17 with verses 18 to 22. When, <coughs> when will this future people praise God? When will or did or does this take place in redemptive history? When did God arise and have pity on his people? When was the time of her favor? When did the nations fear the name of the Lord and kings of the earth fear the glory of the Lord? When was or will this people not yet created be created? And come to praise the Lord because he hears the groans of the prisoner and sets free those who are doomed to die. When did or will peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord? Well, that's a lot to tackle. So let's just start with the idea of the time of the Lord's favor in verse 13. And let's just take one more. So the idea of the Lord's favor there in verse 13. The idea of setting prisoners free in verse 20. Where do we see those two ideas brought together in Scripture? In Luke chapter 4. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to take a look at verses 16 to 21. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, I think that's on page 589. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Now, we're about to read Jesus quoting from Isaiah's description of the end of the exile and the restoration of God's people. That's what we're about to read. And what you'll notice is that uh, what you'll notice is that the concept of the time of the Lord's favor and the freedom of the captives found in Psalm 102, those concepts which exemplify the end of the distress for God's people, were also present in Isaiah's understanding of what it meant for the exile to come to an end and for God's people to be restored. And what makes thanks, buddy. And what makes this passage so powerful? is that Jesus says that his arrival signals the favor of the Lord. Jesus says that he is the one who has brought the exile to an end. He sets the prisoner free. So follow along as I read Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. And he, that's Jesus, 
And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's like the ultimate mic drop. (laughs) After reading Isaiah 61, Jesus sits down in the authoritative position as a teacher. And he prepares to teach in the synagogue. And when he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he is effectively saying, today is the time of God's favor. Psalm 102, verse 13. Today the Lord has appeared in glory. Psalm 102, verse 16. Jesus is saying, God has heard the prayers of the destitute, the poor. Psalm 102, verse 17. He is saying, God has heard the groans of the prisoners. Psalm 102, verse 20. He's saying, I am the answer. Salvation has come. Yes, yes, you may say, but but what about nations coming to fear the name of the Lord, as Psalm 102, verse 15 says? Friends, who do you think we are? What do you think we've been doing this morning? But as people from various tongues and tribes and nations, praising the name of the Lord. We are the nations, the people yet to be created who have come to praise the Lord. Don't you see? We have been recreated by the Holy Spirit so that we might praise the Lord. And we're not the first ones. This began with the gathering of the nations on the day of Pentecost. This is what we learn from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we have the gathering of the nations, the people of different tongues. And Peter preaches the good news and thousands come to worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Pentecost is God creating a people from the nations who will praise his name. And as the book of Acts rolls on, we see people from the nations coming to praise the name of the Lord Jesus. But wait, doesn't Psalm 102 verse 15 say, all the kings of the earth will fear your glory? Well, indeed it does. We know that all the kings of the earth do not yet fear God. That is sadly true. And so Psalm 102 not only looks forward to a fulfillment and inauguration in the life and ministry of Jesus, but it also looks forward to a final future fulfillment and consummation at the end of the ages when, what does Paul say in Philippians? When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. What is more, we know from Revelation 21 that at the final consummation, At Jesus' return, at the final consummation, the people of God will dwell with God in the heavenly Zion, and there the Lord Jesus will appear in his glory. In Revelation 21, we're told that the heavenly city will have no need for the sun or the moon to shine, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. By the light of Jesus, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Revelation 21, 24. This is the future. The bright 
and glorious future that awaits the people of God. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you today to join us in that future. That's right, I'm telling you today that you can join us in the future. The future that the people of God that Psalm 102 and Revelation 21 so beautifully describes. How do you join that future today? It's quite simple. By turning from your sins and placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to join the future by faith today. The truth is is that you and I and everyone here this morning has sinned against God. We have decided to live our own way rather than God's way. Like Adam and Eve, like the people of Israel, we've made up our own laws and rules. We've rejected God's laws and rules, and in doing so, we've rejected God. And the real shame and sham is that we haven't even been able to live up to our own rules. And if you're honest with yourself for a minute, have you really been able to live up to the expectations that you set for yourself. We've set our own standard up below God's standard, and we haven't even been able to live up to that. Because of our sin, we deserve to be eternally exiled from God's presence. It's, it's worse than that. Because of our sin against the eternally holy, just, and good God, we deserve to face his eternal wrath against our sin forever in hell. But... But the good news of the Bible is that in love, God purposed to rescue and restore a people. God purposed to rescue and restore sinners like you and me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God came to earth. Jesus was truly God and truly man, and he lived the life of perfect obedience to God's law. Jesus never sinned. And yet, having lived a fully obedient life, Jesus gave up his life on the cross to set prisoners free from sin. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners to rescue us from eternal death. But that is not all. Three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him, that they too would be rescued from eternal death. Even still, all who turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus, praising his name, will be part of God's restored people in the new heavens and the new earth. All who repent and believe in Jesus will enjoy the future and final promises of Psalm 102. So friend, turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus and join the people of God, praising Jesus today and praising him for all eternity. This is the bright and glorious future that Psalm 102 promises for the people of God. And this is also why Psalm 102 concludes with a humble plea, a humble plea that we can appreciate and I think make ourselves. So let's turn back to Psalm 102 and consider our fourth and final point. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you should be able to find Psalm 102 on page, uh, beginning on page 501. In Psalm 102, verses 23 to 28, we find a humble plea. Please follow along as I read. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. 
They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Verses 23 to 28 begin with a confession from the psalmist. Verses 23 and 24, the psalmist confesses that his life is in God's hands. And that it does not appear that he will live out the full length of his days. Then in the middle of verse 24, a a contrast begins. There's a contrast that runs from the middle of verse 24 to the end of verse 27. And the contrast is centered on the brevity of the psalmist's life and the eternality of God. And the psalm concludes in verse 28 with a statement of faith. These verses begin with the psalmist making an honest plea. Having cast his his gaze forward and filled his heart with hope for the future, his mind returns back to the present. He is not yet at those future days. He is not yet at the consummation of all of God's promises and purposes. And so he has to wait, depending upon the Lord. Christian, this is where we are in life. This is where we are. Yes, God's promises have been (coughs) inaugurated. They have begun to be fulfilled. But we're not yet at the end. The world has not yet been made new. Like the psalmist, we still live in a world of sin and sickness and suffering. So let's learn from this humble plea. And what's the first thing that we can learn from the psalmist? We can learn to say, That God is sovereign over our suffering. God is sovereign over our suffering. According to verse 23, who has broken his strength and shortened his days? God has. God has his purposes in our suffering, just as he has had his purposes in the exile of the psalmist. God's purposes may include teaching us that he's trustworthy, bringing us to share in the sufferings of Christ and thereby making us more like Jesus. God's purposes may include teaching us to suffer in faith so that we might be able to help others who suffer. God's purposes may include calling us to suffer in faith so that others might be called to faith in Jesus. God's purposes may include refining us and purifying us. Brothers and sisters, many times we don't know why suffering comes upon us. But we do know this. God is sovereign over it and in it. God is sovereign. We can even say with Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 31 that God is for us in the midst of our suffering. Well, we must learn to recognize with the psalmist that God is over our suffering. We must also learn to make our plea to God in the midst of suffering. It is not wrong to ask God for healing. It's not wrong to ask God to spare us from death. Isn't that what he he asks in verse 24? You see there? Oh my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. You know, given the context, what he wants to see, I think is the fulfillment of the glorious vision of verses 12 to 22. That is why he wants to remain alive. That's why he asks God to spare his life and not to cut him off. Here is where I think we must be careful. While it is not wrong to ask God to preserve our lives, it may be wrong to ask God to preserve our lives if we're asking for selfish reasons. Here the psalmist is asking God to preserve his life, not for selfish reasons, but for wanting to praise and glorify God with restored people. He wants to live and praise God and see the fulfillment of God's promises. And yet, I am sure like Paul, 
in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, the psalmist would agree that for God's people, death is gain. For God's people, death is gain. The psalmist knows that God can answer his request. He, he knows that God can lengthen his days because God is eternal. He's the eternal sovereign ruler over all creation. And this is where the, the contrast between the psalmist's brevity and the Lord's eternality comes in from verses 24b, second part of that, to verse 27. The psalmist lives days, you see there, but the Lord's years endure. The Lord laid the foundation of the creation, flung the stars into the sky, verse 25. The created order itself may pass away, but God will remain. Verse 26, they will wear out, but God will not. Did you know that the writer of Hebrews applies these verses to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1? It's just another signal from the New Testament writers that Jesus truly is God. Anyway, the, the whole process of the created order dissolving and being remade will be nothing for God. It will simply be for him like, like changing clothes. He will take off that old, worn-out garment and put on the new one. And We have a sense of what this is like, right? Um, it's no trouble for you to take off one coat and just put another one on. Well, the point is that God remains the same, unmoved and untroubled by even the passing away of the created order. Now, up to this point, this has all been the basis for the psalmist's plea. God's sovereign eternality has been the basis of his plea for God to spare his life. But in verse 28, we see that this eloquent exposition of God's sovereign eternality once again becomes the foundation of hope for God's people. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. How God's sovereign eternality is the foundation of hope for God's people. Verse 28 is a statement of the psalmist's confidence. <coughs> the children of God will dwell secure. That's true of the psalmist too. He is a child of God. That's true of you if you're a child of God. Here the psalmist is certain that God's children will dwell secure. Even if he dies, he is safe and secure in the care of the eternal and sovereign God. God's children cannot be moved. That's what it means for them to be established. Their, their future is fixed. It's certain. And let's grasp this in light of what the psalmist has just said. He has just said that the whole universe can perish, but God will not. And do you understand what he's saying now with the children of God being established? He's saying that God's children will dwell secure. The whole universe may perish, but God's children will not. The whole universe may fade away, but God's children will remain. How is that? Because of the last two words of verse 29. God's children will ever live before him. God's children will always live in his presence. The psalmist, he, he poured out his heart to God and put his hope in him for restoration. Though weak and heavy laden, he poured out his heart to the Lord and trusted in God's purposes for the future and full restoration of his people. And this is our calling too. Like the psalmist, we may cry out to God in our present pain, but let us always remember that we have a firm hope of resurrection and restoration in the new heavens and the new earth. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will once again appear in his glory. So let us cling to the promise of 1 John chapter 3 verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Christian, pour out your heart in prayer and put your hope in God. In doing so, you will not only imitate the psalmist, but you will imitate Jesus. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was burdened with the sin of the world. He endured that affliction for the joy that was set before him. And, like the psalmist, he entrusted himself and his future to God the Father, saying, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Pour out your heart to God and put your hope in God. He can bear what you cannot. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are weak, but we rejoice in the truth that you are strong. Father, teach us to pray with the psalmist and to pray like Jesus, giving you our hearts. You're not ashamed. Your ear is turned toward your children, and you can answer. And so we ask that you would answer the burdens of our heart. We pray and ask for your glory's sake that you'd make us more like Jesus and give us strength, strength to walk in faith each day that you give us here. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Our closing song is entitled, Abide With Me, <coughs> and it's number 63 in your hymnal. Let me encourage you to go ahead and and turn in your hymnal to number 63, Abide With Me. Psalm 102 is a, a, a prayer of affliction. <clears throat> 